Good morning. This is lesson nine in our ongoing series on the book of Hebrews. And I've titled this, I probably should say retitled this, Defining Rest. And the reason is I, I'm planning to essentially stop at verse 10. I'm going to cheat a little bit and go to verse 11, but we'll pick up verse 11 next week and go through the end of the chapter. When I was in college, one of the things that I did to get through was to work on the maintenance crew. And uh, one of the jobs that we had on the maintenance crew was the Friday night uh, staff, which meant that uh, from 12 o'clock midnight until 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, we spent the, uh, the night in the student union building cleaning up. On one of those occasions, there, there was a fellow that was working with us who I wouldn't describe as the most energetic person around. And, and as the work crew was working away, it all became apparent to all of us that uh, our friend wasn't there. And uh, we wandered around the building until we got down to this room with the piano. And here was our friend curled up under the piano uh, getting his rest. Uh, that isn't the kind of rest that we're talking about this morning. Sleeping on the job is not rest. And, and frankly, I fear that there are Christians who are sleeping on the job. And that's, this is not going to be a message... Uh, some kind of a NyQuil message or whatever it is for you that's going to help you get your, your, your rest in that sense of the word. It is interesting to me, however, how important rest is in the physical realm. Have you noticed? I, I haven't really done a, a great survey, and I don't plan to do it either, but when you look in terms of television ads and the things that are advertised, how many, how many mattress ads do you see? You know, this particular mattress has memory and foam memory and this kind of thing. And the essence of which is we all need our rest. And then you've got the pills and all the stuff that you take to help you get your rest. And again, the essence of that message is we need our rest. And that's true. But if it's true in the physical realm, it is more so in the spiritual realm. We need our rest. And that's what this message is really about. Last week, we looked uh, in chapter 3, and we talked about verses 7 through 19. And, of course, you know that keys off of Psalm 95 and talks about the rest that that first generation of Israelites failed to enter into. That's a dangling preposition, but I can't bring it back. And, and, and so it, it looks at that and the lessons that are uh, applicable to the readers of Hebrews uh, regarding their failure, the danger of failing, failing to enter into that rest. But what that text does not do is to really define for us what the nature of that rest is. And I've already suggested to you that there are, there are several versions of rest in our text. There will be the initial rest of God from Genesis chapter 2, where he rests at the completion of his work of creation. There is the rest that the first generation of Israelites failed to enter into because of unbelief. See, I, I squeezed my preposition in real quick so you wouldn't see it. It's still hanging out there. But, but there is that rest that they did not uh, attain because of unbelief. 
And it's clear that even that generation under Joshua that did enter the land still had not attained unto the rest that God is seeking for men to have, the, the ultimate rest. And so you see Psalm 95 picking up on that. And, and my point is there are various kinds of rest. So what rest is it that we're talking about? And the commentators just agonize because they want to nail this thing down. Which rest are we talking about? Well, we'll see if chapter 4 does not provide us with that answer. So what we're going to do is do an overview of chapters 1 through 4, look back at, the, uh, at chapter 3 because it is really from that chapter in Psalm 95 or on that chapter that uh, the author is building his argument and he's going back to pieces of Psalm 95 to try and make his argument with regard to the rest that we all desperately need. And then we'll seek to come to terms with our text, particularly verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4, and then make some words of application. When you think back then at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, you remember that the author begins in verses 1 through 4 by saying, God, who has spoken in various ways uh, through his prophets at various times in various ways through his prophets, has now spoken with finality and fullness through his Son. And then he goes on to describe the Son with seven descriptions which are speaking of him in his exalted state as, as God uh, and, and, and then follows up with seven scripture citations in the remainder of chapter 1 to buttress his argument that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, is superior to the angels. That's the theme in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 2, the theme still remains, but he begins with an exhortation. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, the author is saying, If indeed the Son is who we are saying He is, who the Word of God says He is, who the Father says that He is, if He is who He is, then we ought to pay much more careful attention to Him. We ought to listen carefully to what the Son has to say to us. And then he moves from exhortation to exposition. And he says, this one who was higher than the angels, he has now condescended. He has become lower than the angels. He has taken on human flesh. He has identified with humanity in such a way that it qualifies him to do the work of redemption. And through the work that has come about by means of his incarnation, He now has taken man and elevated him to that state that we see in Genesis chapter 1, where man has honor and glory and dignity. It is only in Jesus that man is elevated once again to that place of dignity and honor. So chapter 2 talks about all of the things that take place that are the fruits of the incarnation. But the amazing thing is that our Lord condescends himself and then goes through the humiliation of death and is resurrected so that he may raise us up. And now we see him once again exalted at the right hand of the Father where he can be a sympathetic and a faithful high priest for us. So that is the superiority of the Son over the angels in chapters 1 and 2. Then in chapter 3 you move to the theme of greater than Moses. Now, initially, it seemed to me that after verse 6, that sort of faded out and and that you lost sight of it. But I'm inclined to think it's still there. He's going to move to greater than Aaron, 
greater to the Old Testament priesthood uh, shortly when we get to chapter 5. But in chapter 3, especially those first six verses, we see that Jesus, while he has similarities to Moses uh, in terms of being an apostle and a mediator, he is one who is vastly superior to Moses. Moses uh, is the one who is the, a part of the house. Our Lord is the builder of the house. Moses is a servant. Jesus is the son. Uh, uh, Moses is one who is uh, faithful in his house. And our Lord Jesus is one who is faithful over his house. So his point is, our Lord Jesus is vastly superior to, to Moses. This one who has such high regard within the Jewish community, believing and unbelieving, Jesus is vastly superior to Moses. And then when you come to the, the next verses, uh, we see the warnings that are based uh, on Psalm 95 and the lessons from history that come from that. We'll come back to that in, in a little bit. Chapter 4. Now we come out of those warnings that say it is possible we may not enter into rest to a definition of what that rest is. What is the rest into which we should seek to enter? Um, and so he will pick up on that in verses 1 through 10, and then what I call in verses 11 through 16, laboring to enter into rest. Ironic, isn't it, that you see, maybe we say paradoxical, that, that the rest that we have is the cessation from our works, but it is a rest that we strive to enter into, and those are really not contradictory thoughts as we will hopefully discover. So let's go back and look particularly at verses 7 through 19 of chapter 3 just to get the backdrop because everything that is said in chapter 4 in these, in these 10 verses especially is built upon Psalm 95 and the exposition that has taken place in, in chapter 3. Only now what he will do is go back and pick up portions of that text. Remember he quotes all of verse uh, 7b of Psalm 95 all the way to the end of Psalm 95 and verse 11. He cites the whole text, but he will go back and he will fix upon certain parts of that to make his point. All right, so in verses 7 through 19, you have the greater than Moses theme. Now, you may or may not buy this, but, but subtly the argument goes like this to me. What you see in, in the last half of chapter 3 is the failure of that first generation of Israelites to enter into the land. Is that not true? Who was their leader? <laughs> Moses was their leader, was he not? Moses couldn't get the people to their rest. He was a great man. He could not get them to their rest. And I take it that is, is a contrast with our Lord Jesus who does and will. Then you find... Moses, kind of subtly, is not only the one who can't get the people to that rest, he is the one who doesn't get there himself because of, of his disobedience and his unbelief as described in Numbers chapter 20 by striking the rock when he was to speak to it, that even Moses does not enter into that promised land as the generation, that first generation of Israel uh, did not. So I would say that's an argument that continues the greater than Moses theme. And here's one that, that occurred to me, and I, I snuck it in here because I didn't see it last week, but it, it, it's an interesting point. 
I think that this text subtly argues against those who are in Judaism or have come out of Judaism and are tempted to fall back into it. It seems to me that's one of the significant uh, elements with regard to this audience is that you have Jewish believers who have some kind of temptation to fall back into Judaism for reasons of of persecution or whatever. They're tempted to fall back, and, and it looks to me like there may be a subtle argument against that. And I'm really picking up at, at from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 8, and again at verse 15. And if you look at that next frame, you'll see a quotation of Hebrews chapter 3 and, and verse 8. And I want you to notice these three translations. What is very interesting to me is that, that each one of them has a very unique flavor. Uh, the first one comes from the Net Bible. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of testing in the wilderness. That is the most literal translation you can get. That's, that's precisely what the text reads. It, it is strange to me. I was looking to the new ASV to follow through with me and be faithful to a literal interpretation. And while they stick it in the margin, they change, they change or they edit in a way that says something slightly different. In the New American Standard, it says, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, that's repeated in verse 8 and in verse 15. And what they're doing is they, they in the margin, indicate it's as in the rebellion. But they're picking up from the context and saying it's what they did. Now, I'm not one usually is waving the NIV flag, but but I, I simply point out to you, as I was reading the text in the NIV, It all of a sudden jumped out at me. Wait a minute. This is not saying the same thing. It says, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. And and I think think there's some legitimacy to this. I'm not sure I'm going to plant my flag in, in, in this particular rendering, but I think what he's saying is this. What we're saying about what Israel did in the wilderness is a warning to you and there is a sense in which you, and in particular, if you are one who is toying with identifying more with Moses, more with the law, and more with the old system, then you've cast your lot with them. And if you cast your lot with them, you're under the law and you can't get into rest either. And so you were there and you're a part of that rebellion. Now, that's not a strange argument for the writer of the Hebrews to make. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, he's going to talk about the, the offering that was made, that, that, Abra- that, that the descendants uh, of, of Abraham would offer a sacrifice to Melchizedek, and this whole thing that people were in Abraham's loins uh, and so on, that Aaron was in Abraham's loins when that sacrifice was made. There is an identification. But if you don't buy that, then look at the next frame at these two texts of Scripture from the New Testament. This is our Lord Jesus speaking those strong words of indictment in Matthew chapter 23. Okay? He's talking to the, to the Jewish religious system about their hypocrisy. And here's what he finally says in verse 34. For this reason I am sending you prophets and wise men and experts in the law, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, 
so that on you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I think what he's saying is this. When you choose to identify with that system and when you perpetuate the very things that they did, then you are one of them and you enter into their judgment and that condemnation that falls upon them falls upon you. I'm not sure how else to take that. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 7, you remember... Stephen, in his great final last sermon with a wonderful conclusion for him, he gets to go to heaven. But Stephen is talking about this persistent rebellion and unbelief that characterizes Israel. And he says in uh, verses 51 through 53, You stubborn people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit like your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So all I'm saying is this. It is an interesting thing, the way the NIV has translated that, which is, which is kind of a, 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 a non-committal expression in the rebellion. And so you have to ask, whose rebellion was it? And it may be, it may be that the author is suggesting when you choose to identify with that system and those people, you enter into that rebellion and become a part of it. If that's so, it's a significant part of the writer's argument to these people. So that leads to the conclusion. Any of you who want to go back to Moses and to Judaism will fail like that generation, and thus you will enter into the same consequences. Do you really want to repeat their error? Okay, for what that is worth. Let's look at some other observations uh, in regard to chapter 3. All failed to enter into the rest. Now, I understand that there's two, Joshua and Caleb, but, but virtually the text says all of them failed. And it, it seems to me that that's a way of saying to us, this is a very serious risk. This is a very serious issue. If that entire generation failed, th then you have to say, that's a significant risk factor for me as I look at that. When we hear all kinds of statistics, uh, when you listen to the, the, the commercials for all the medicines on, on television and elsewhere, you know, and you've you got to ask your doctor if you need this and you need that, and then they end up giving you this list of stuff. You know, if they said to you, 99% of all the people who take these drugs, their hair falls out, their teeth fall out, and, and have, they have heart attacks, you would say to yourself, I don't think I'm taking that drug. But you mentally make the conversion and you say, I know that's true, but they were the exception. And, and, and the help is the rule. And so you go for it. He's saying the rule is they all failed. That ought to make us serious about the warnings. They failed for 40 years, persistent in their unbelief and in their rebellion. They failed under Moses' leadership. Now, I know that's not underscored, but it just seems to me to fit into this whole section about greater than Moses. Moses, as great as he was, did not get them into the land. They failed after hearing the message. Now, now think about what they heard. 
Granted, they didn't hear the gospel as Peter preached it in Acts chapter 2. But they heard the message. They heard Moses speak for God. And he says, tomorrow this plague is going to come. And then he says, tomorrow this plague is going to go away. Everything that Moses said, God reiterated and underscored by miracles. They watched as as Moses led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. They watched as the soldiers of the Egyptians drowned in the sea, just as Moses had said. So the point is, they heard God's word. And remember in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 4, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then he talks about all the miracles and the attesting signs that came with that word to validate it. They heard the message and they saw the validation and it still did not bring them into the land. That's a serious risk, a serious problem. God was angry with them, so they didn't enter into their rest. Their root problem was unbelief. And then the same danger is still present today. The warning of Psalm 95 is saying the same danger remains that was there. We need to beware of not entering into the rest out of unbelief and disobedience. And the offer of rest still remains. The offer of rest that that first generation of Israelites failed to attain is still an offer that exists today. And so that offer needs to be pursued, as the psalmist was saying. Now, here we get to to what I would say is the the guts of, of this message. The key to following the argument of chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now, i got to tell you, it's not encouraging to read the commentaries on this. I, I did get encouragement from one commentary. And in that commentary, he said that the purpose of commentaries is to... This is from Luther. The purpose of commentaries is to make the angels laugh. And, and, and I think there's some belly laughs going on in heaven with some of this. But it is not encouraging to read the commentaries and even hear sermons on this. It's as though everybody's throwing their hands into the air and just saying, what are we to do? Well, I agonize too, but it seems to me that there are some some simple ways to approach this that give us what the basic meaning of this text is. The first of of those is we have to identify the key terms and understand how the author defines them. I'll get to that in a minute. We have to understand those key terms, the ones that the author keeps going back and drawing them out and saying to us, these are the things you need to understand. We need to know those terms and what those terms mean. And then we need to know how the psalmist connects the dots. In other words, when you look at this scenario that takes place in ancient Israel and then you look at, at, at the, the repetition, uh, the drawing uh, to, of attention to those circumstances of the failure of that first generation, that takes place, and, and the text says David, whether that means in the Psalms or whether that means David is really the author, I, I'm not positive about and I don't think it matters, but in David's day, Here you are, a people now actually in the land as opposed to outside the land, a people who have more access to worship God, and yet the same warnings and the same offer of rest are spoken of as available to that day. So we have to understand, if we're going to see the application of that text for us today, 
then you have to understand how did the psalmist move from the events of that first generation and their failures to his applications in Psalm 95. And that now is something that is in the distant past for the writer of the Hebrews. How does he take that message of Psalm 95 and bring it into the present of his day so that it now has relevance to his audience? And if we understand that, I think it gives us the principles by which we can say, okay, we're a couple of thousand years later than that. And so how do we take the lesson of Israel's failure of Psalm 95, of Hebrews, and see its relevance and application to us. So the key is you got to see how the authors connect the dots and you got to see what points it is that the authors make based upon their focusing on key concepts. Okay, let's look at the key concepts then. The first of them is today. The writer loves that term, and what he's saying is, When the author of of Psalm 95 said today, he was obviously keeping that offer current so that whatever was offered uh, in general terms, whatever was offered to that first generation, and, and it obviously can't be entering into the land because that generation of people were in the land, but the offer of rest is still open for those in in the day of the psalmist and and the writer to the Hebrews will say in effect it's still today it's still today you know, if you were to say as some uh, uh, ads and stuff will say you know this offer expires tomorrow well all we need to know is it's today not tomorrow the offer is still valid so that's a key concept with the with our author and then there are different words that are used, the message, what God speaks. But in essence, what we're talking about is the word, God's word, that which was revealed in the Son, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, that which we ought to pay closer attention to, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that word which is quick and powerful that we're going to see later in chapter 4, that word, that message was heard. And he says... They heard the good news just as we did. Now, we need to be careful because the good news doesn't necessarily mean a full-blown gospel message. But the good news was that God had promised to the Israelites that if they would be faithful to him and obey him, he would get them into the land. Folks, that was good news. But the good news, as much as it was proclaimed to them and as much as it was underscored by the miracles that were done, it was not a a message that was received with faith. So that good news. We now have received the good news. And once again, the issue is whether or not we receive that message in faith. Now look at that third category, belief and unbelief. It is clear that... uh, that, that, that unbelief, last verse of chapter 3, it was due to unbelief that they did not enter into rest, that the, that the Israelites did not enter. In chapter 4 and verse 10, it is those who believe, those who by faith receive and accept the word who do enter into rest. So the key term is belief or unbelief. But it is interesting. I've put in this word community, and I put it in in, uh, parentheses or in italics, 
what are those brackets, um, to, to point out that the word community is not actually there. But there's, a, there's an interesting uh, translation here, which I think that we at least need to take a look at. In chapter 4, verse 2. For we had good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard did them no good since they did not join in with those who heard it by faith. That Bible. Now look at the NASB. For indeed, we have good news preached to us. We've had good news preached to us just as they did also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. It's all a way of, of, of the way you handle that text. And, and I guess I'm inclined to say both are true. We know that the message has to be accepted by faith. Just hearing the word without embracing it, without believing the word, is not going to bring them to rest. It's not going to bring us to rest. You have to receive the word with faith. The interesting part of that is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the word is that which inspires faith, and it is faith that then makes that word applicable and realistic and valid in our lives. And I think because of Hebrews and its strong emphasis on the community of faith, where he talks about encouraging one another and so on, Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 10, and, and you've got this whole element of the way in which the body builds itself up, it seems to me that it's also true that those who believe identify with others who believe. And I was thinking about this. When you think about the rebellion, for instance, with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, what happens? Well, basically, Moses says, all right, you guys line up over here, and everybody on his side, line up with him. And, and they identify themselves either with Moses or with the rebels, and, and when the ground opens up, they go. So it seems to me that it is really critical for us to choose who we are going to identify. When you go to the, the, the ten spies and the two spies, the people of Israel had to make a choice. Do we believe the report and the encouragement of the two and identify with them? Or do we believe the report of the ten and identify with them? They obviously identified with the ten. So when one receives the word with faith, one identifies with other people of faith, and that, of course, is a very supportive and sustaining thing. Key term, I saved it for last, I confess, is the word rest. There are a variety of uh, ways in which the word rest is used in, in our text. The rest of possessing Canaan. And when you look, for instance, in the book of Joshua, you will discover that that word rest is used. And, and often what it will be saying is the land had rest from war. In other words, when the Israelites followed Joshua in obedience into the land and they defeated the Canaanites, then they had rest from war. The problem was they didn't follow through to the end. <laughs> they didn't persevere. And consequently, all through their history, and in particular when you come to the book of Judges, Judges is the consequence of not following through with what God had said with respect to uh, defeating and destroying the enemies. So there is that entering of the land. There is the rest then that is, that is remaining in Psalm 95, 
the rest which is still offered today, but it can't be the rest of entering into the land, can it? Because they're in the land. The rest has to be something bigger or broader than that. And then I think the the big rest, if you want to put it in those terms, is God's Sabbath rest. What's very fascinating to me is that the author keeps going back to the beginning and talking about restoration. When you look at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, you see the honor and the dignity and the authority that God has given to men. When you look at Hebrews chapter 2 and the incarnation, you see that the Lord Jesus, because he identified and took upon himself our humanity and died on the cross of Calvary, because of that he now elevates men to that which they lost, all those who believe in Christ. Genesis chapter 2, God goes through the creation process, and at the end of six days he has created everything, and everything is perfect. And now he ceases from his labors. (laughs) <laughs> he didn't he didn't rest on day 1 he rests on day 7 when the work has been completed and it is perfect now when you think about that and you look then at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden it seems to me that you have to say sabbath rest is not the absence of all labor because god put Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall and it was to be their joy and their pleasure to be involved in tending and keeping that garden, was it not? It was their pleasure and their joy, and you might say in one sense, their work to subdue the earth and bring it under God's dominion. But it wasn't the kind of labor where they're laboring in the flesh, they're laboring in the authority that God has given to them as being created in His image. When you look at heaven, heaven is not a place where there's just hammocks hanging all over the place. And, 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 you know, where we're sipping our tea and whatever on the beach. Heaven is the place where there is work. There's meaningful work, just like the Garden of, of Eden. There is meaningful work, but it is our joy, and that work is not carried out in our human strength. It is carried out through the grace and the power of our Lord, so that that labor is joy. So my point is, there is a Sabbath rest... And that is the rest when, our, when, when God rests from his labor when they have been completed. It is the rest that comes after the job, you might say, is done. Which I think then helps us understand what it means when he says labor to enter into that rest. If you want to put it in Genesis 1 and 2 terms, Genesis 1 uh, up to verse, chapter uh, t- uh, 2, verse uh, 2 or so, That's God at work. And when you see the Sabbath rest, it's God at rest because his work is complete. And as our Lord Jesus makes clear in John chapter 5, his work isn't really completely done. He's got other things he's going to do now, and that's why our Lord could work on the Sabbath as well. Okay, so what I'm saying is there are those elements of rest. What is the rest about which the author is speaking? There are various rests in our text. Which rest do we talk about? Here's where I end up. I think we have to understand rest in principle coming out of chapter 4, verse 10. Rest is the cessation of our works. Rest is relying on what God has given to us. 
His word, His power, so that when He says to the first generation of Israelites, I'm going to give you that land. Go in there and take it. It is that rest that says, we can't do this. They were absolutely right. The ten spies were right. We can't do this. (laughs) But God said He would. He would do it, and therefore, they will enter into rest as they go about the work that God has given them to do by faith, knowing it is God's work. And then, when that work is complete, assuming it would have been, assuming that work is complete, then they have rest from war and peace and all the benefits that come from the labor that has preceded it. That's my take. Now, the paradox we see is we are to strive to enter into that rest. We are to cease from our works, but we are to strive to enter into the rest. And I take it that means just as God labored to enter into the rest of Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, we are to strive to labor into that ultimate rest that is going to come to pass in eternity. I think there will be a millennial rest where God fulfills His promises, as we see in Isaiah. There will be the rest that we see described in, in Revelation 21 and 22, where we enter in permanently to that rest that has come about. But the writer of the Hebrews is saying there are things to do. Just as the Israelites had to go take on the Canaanites, there are things that you have to do. You do that not in the strength of your flesh. You do that in the strength that God supplies, and therefore you rest in Him. Now let's talk about that in in practical terms. I think rest is what everybody desperately needs. And I think the reason why the writer to Hebrews does not specify which rest he's talking about is because he's got an audience with mixed needs. The rest that, that we're talking about in principle is the rest from your works. So let's talk about the rest of evangelism. I, I know that one of our, our friends here this morning, uh, as they minister in a different part of the world, they talk to people about rest. Because people know they need it. They don't have it. God wants us to rest. It is that which people desire. And so our Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. I'll give you rest. My burden is light. My, my, my yoke is light. My burden won't be burdensome to you. Why? Not because there's no work, but because he bears the load. Remember, that's what he says about the scribes and Pharisees. They heap the load upon you, but they don't lift a finger to help you with it. God gives us a load to bear, so to speak, but he bears it for us so that we are to trust in him. Anyway, the rest of evangelism is the rest of ceasing from striving by your works to please God. There is nobody more tired and worn out than a person who's trying to get to heaven by good works. Man, it's just not going to happen. But they're going to they're just wear themselves out. And, and it was especially true within Judaism, but it's true in other works-related religions as well. People just keep trying and trying and trying and trying harder, and they'll never get there. Because you can't get there by self-effort. I was thinking about Leviticus chapter 16. In the Day of Atonement, it says that associated with the Day of Atonement, there will be a day, a Sabbath rest, 
a Sabbath rest. Isn't, isn't that fitting? I didn't have a chance to talk to Tom about that. But it, it seems to me that that's a perfect picture. That when the Israelites celebrate the Day of Atonement, that day in, that looks forward to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, they don't work. Isn't that not a beautiful picture of, of what happens when our Lord Jesus comes and He dies on the cross for sinners? And He says, stop working. I've done it. It's a day of rest, the Day of Atonement. Don't strive for salvation. Accept it as a gift. The rest of eternal bliss. There is that, and we need, as I've said, to strive to enter into that because we have work to do, as I understand it. You look at Romans chapter 8, and you see the agony of, of the, all the earth and all creation suffering and groaning. And there is that day that we look forward to. But before we get to that day, the argument of Romans says we need to live lives, once we come to faith, live lives that are in obedience to God, Romans chapter 7 is the picture of a man who is not resting. You ever think about it that way? It's the picture of a man who trusts in God, but he's working like the devil serving the Lord. That's the name of a country and western song, by the way. And, and here he is. He's just working himself to death, and it isn't working. And that's when he comes to chapter 8, and it comes back to the work of Christ. And it says, all of those who are walking in the Spirit will fulfill these things that they cannot do in the flesh. That's the beauty of the rest that's coming for us. The rest of sanctification, then, is the rest of knowing it is He who does the work through us. It is He who bears the load. And so what I'm saying is this. Every one of us needs rest. And, and, and as I look around and I look at our circumstances, I see Christians just frazzled. And, and, and they don't need a vacation, folks. They don't need the Bahamas. Pardon me. I, I, we went on a vacation. It was a great time. But I'm not talking about that kind of rest. I'm talking about the rest that says God has promised us rest. He has provided all that we need. And He says to us that we need to rest in Him as we do those things that He has given us to do that we don't rest upon our own strength. When it comes to our economy... I'm no prophet and I'm no economist, but I don't care what the politicians say, folks. I think we're in for hard times. And if we're not, most of the world is already and has been there. And we could agonize. I guess I would say this is a place where you could lose your rest. A friend of mine is now with the Lord in Black Tuesday. I didn't even know what that was. That day I called him up on the phone. And he was, he was saying that somebody had asked him if he was going to go down to the stock market uh, because of all the things going on. He says, why would I do that? I'd ruin a perfectly good day of golf. Well, just take that in spiritual terms and, and say, you know, we could agonize till the cows come home about the economy. And the reality is we need to be responsible, but we need to rest. He's going to provide for our needs. We look at uh, Elections. And I'll bet you that there are, there are some of us whose stomachs are turning a little bit, just a little tightening up as we think about the possibilities of what political ramifications could be in the future. And, and some people may not be resting in light of those possibilities. Let me tell you, folks, the people of Judah went down into Babylon. A bunch of, a bunch of hard things happened. But you know what? God's word prevailed and God's promises were true. We need to rest in Him 
not in who wins this election. We need to rest in him. In terms of ministry, why are people burning out? I'm not talking just about paid people. I'm talking about Christians. Why are they burning out? Not because they're working too hard, necessarily. I'm not sure I see too many people doing that. But because they don't rest. They don't rest in their work. And realize they cannot change hearts and lives. Only God can do that. But they can do what they're responsible to do. Some of us, it may be our families. For you, it may be your kids. For me, it's my grandkids. I have responsibilities to fulfill. But bottom line, I have to rest in Him. That's the rest. Not seeing it all as hanging on my shoulders. But seeing that it's already a work that is hung on the cross with Him. We need rest. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to rest. If, there are any, if there's anyone here in my hearing who has never trusted in Jesus and is working hard to try and earn your favor, help them to see it's futile and it's hopeless. You have sent your Son not only to reveal yourself but to redeem us. Bring them to faith so that they trust in the Lord Jesus and rest in him. Help those of us who are Christians who need to get to work, not to use rest as an excuse for a vacation from life and service. Help those of us who may see our responsibilities to serve, to rest in you and recognize that it's in your strength that we serve. Give us rest, we pray. Help us to share that rest with others in Jesus' name.